Now on Documentary on News Talk, a fast-paced dash through the history books focusing on the discoveries, inventions and successes attributed to Irish people. This is Extraordinary Era. Ireland, the Emerald Isle, the land of saints and scholars, where there are 40 shades of green, where the mountains of Morn sweep down to the sea and where the rivers dance all over the globe to the sounds of Thin Lizzy and Sinead O'Connor, Enya and the Chieftains. Literary works like Dubliners, The Country Girls, Circle of Friends, Normal People and Dracula fill bookshop bookcases from Transylvania to Pennsylvania. This little country gave the world Guinness and Jameson and Bulmers and Baileys. Irish Nobel laureates, Olympians and Oscar winners shared the world stage with leprechauns, banshees and dear old St. Patrick. Yes, it is fair to say Ireland has given the world a lot to be thankful for. We Irish definitely punch above our weight in the fields of celebrity and acclaim. But in fact, Ireland has given more to the world than you might think. For every celebrated Irish figure known across the globe, there are lots more whose stories became hidden in the annals of history. People who played their part in making the world what it is today. These are their stories. The stories of those whose legacies are forgotten, but whose inventions, discoveries and accolades withstand. This is Extraordinary Era. In the last episode, we explored Ireland's deep affinity with the ground, the earth, the Irish sod. So, where shall we continue our journey? Let us look upwards to the skies that carried our people to every corner of the globe, where Celtic gales carry the screams of the banshee, up there where there are four seasons in one day, where it could be lashing or there could be great drying out where the winds may always be at your back and where the sun may shine warm upon your face. This is episode two, Up in the Era. Kilkenny, 1324. Townspeople daren't look to the winter sky for fear of what or who they might see flying through the night. Yes. The area was awash with suspicion and finger-pointing. Accusations of heresy were rife. And so began the first recorded witch trial in Ireland. The accused, Petronilla de Meath. To fully understand Petronilla's story, we first need to look to another woman. Dame Alice Kittler was born to a Flemish noble family in Kilkenny in the latter half of the 13th century. She married four times and often found herself embroiled in controversy, starting in 1302 when she and her second husband were accused of killing her first husband. But by 1324, after her fourth husband had passed away, people became suspicious of the gentleman's causes of death. Her stepchildren from all of her marriages banded together and accused her of having a hand in their father's deaths. Alice Kittler, you are accused of denying Christ and the church, of dismembering animals and scattering the pieces at crossroads as offerings to a demon called the Son of Art, of placing the intestines of chickens, along with worms, fingernails from dead bodies, Hairs from the buttocks and clothes from boys who have died before being baptised. 
into the skull of a robber and concocting potions to incite people to love, hate and kill. But most seriously of all, you were accused of using sorcery to murder your husbands and infatuating others to give their possessions to you and your son, William Outlaw. To escape the trial, Hitler fled to England, which is where Petronilla comes back into the fold. Petronilla was the maid of Alice Kittler. She was accused as an accomplice to her mistress, and now all eyes fell on the 24-year-old. The Bishop of Ossory, the aptly named Richard Ledred, incarcerated, tortured and flogged her, and brought her through six different parishes to be humiliated and persecuted before she eventually confessed to the charges brought against her. In Ledred's account of the proceedings from 1324, he wrote, Petronilla confessed that she, with her said mistress, often made a sentence of excommunication against her husband with wax candles lighted and repeated expectoration. And though she was indeed herself an adept in this accursed art of theirs, she said she was nothing in comparison with her mistress, from whom she had learned all these things and many more. And indeed, in all the realm of the King of England, there were none more skilled or equal to her in this act. During Petronilla's torture, she also confessed that Kittler had had sexual relations with a demon and that her mistress had applied a potion to pieces of wood which enabled them to fly. Though one assumes these admissions were made as a result of the torture she experienced, her words brought about her demise. Because this trial happened before any formal witchcraft statute in Ireland, these crimes were viewed as heresy. Ledred's punishment? Petronilla was to be the first person in Ireland and Great Britain to be burnt at the stake for the crime of witchcraft. As the centuries progressed, the sciences of physics, chemistry and biology became more commonplace than the ideas of sorcery and witchcraft, thank goodness. Science has shaped how we perceive the world, and many Irish people have been at the forefront of scientific discoveries throughout the ages. So, without further ado, here comes the science bit. Before science we know today, alchemy had gripped the minds of philosophers for hundreds of years, up until the 17th century. The pursuit of turning base metals into gold and the creation of an elixir of immortality were main aims of the art form which believed every object was made up of varying proportions of wind, water, fire and earth. This was the world that Robert Boyle was born into in Waterford in 1627. Boyle was deeply religious and had a great belief in truth. While visiting Florence, Italy, in 1642, the astronomer Galileo died, which prompted the 15-year-old to become involved in the study of science. As he became more educated, Boyle found like-minded students and they created the New Philosophy, a branch of study where students would no longer accept the authority of ancient Greek philosophers. Do you mean to tell me you reject the teachings of Pythagoras? You bet your ass. Socrates? Oh, please. Plato? Oh, hell no. Boyle rather to make discoveries on controlled experiments and published these discoveries for the greater good. 
Before this time, alchemists had kept their experiments secret for fear someone would steal their chance to possess the Philosopher's Stone. Boyle is probably most well known for Boyle's Law, the relationship between pressure and the volume of a gas. This law helps the understanding of how lungs work. When the volume of the lung increases during inspiration, the pressure in the lung will decrease, therefore causing air to rush in and fill the lung. How do you guys not know this? Also, Boyle gave us new vocabulary. His 1661 essay, The Skeptical Chemist, is considered to be the first use of the word chemist, as opposed to alchemist. In the book, he warns people to distinguish between the things they believe to be true and the things they know to be true, a groundbreaking basis for the burgeoning scientific world. Because Boyle was also a devout Christian, he believed that the study of the Bible was hugely important. It is for this reason that Boyle gave his own money to publish the Bible into many languages, including Arabic, Algonquin, Turkish and Irish. Boyle may have been the father of chemistry, but he was only one of many scientists to come from our shores. Now, who do we have here? Jones Kwan, born in Mallow County, Cork in 1796. Anatomist and surgeon remembered for writing the textbook on anatomy in 1828, which was the standard English language textbook on the subject for 80 years. Father John McHenry, born in Limerick in 1796. Anthropologist and archaeologist remembered for the discovery of fossils of woolly mammoths and hyenas alongside the remains of humans, thus supporting the idea of human antiquity. Patrick Danley, born in Dublin in 1809, geologist and cartographer, remembered for the discovery of current bedding, a feature of the makeup of sedimentary rock. Ellen Hutchins, born in Bantry Bay, County Cork in 1785. Botanist, remembered for my discovery of new species of mosses and lichens, and my specimens, artworks and documents are in scientific collections across the world. Vincent Barry, born in Sunday's Well in Cork in 1908, scientist and researcher, remembered for developing the anti-leprosy drug clofazamine, which helped save the lives of 15 million people. Sir Francis Beaufort, born in Navan County Mead in 1774, hydrographer and rear admiral of the Royal Navy remembered for the Beaufort Scale. Ah yes, the Beaufort scale, the measure that relates wind speeds to observed conditions at sea and on land. Francis Beaufort began his nautical career as a cabin boy, but an unusual occurrence would shape the rest of his life. At the age of 15, Beaufort was shipwrecked due to his captain's use of faulty charts. It was this event which spurred Beaufort to improve life on the seas for sailors. Beaufort climbed the nautical ranks from cabin boy to midshipman to captain. Where other captains at the time would enjoy leisurely pursuits, Beaufort spent his time making and compiling scientific observations, all in the hopes of creating safer working conditions for people at sea. All his hard work and dedication culminated into the Beaufort scale. A scale from 0 to 12, where wind speeds could be assessed by the impact that they are having on the sea and the land around them. The scale is still used by shipping forecasts today. Some of the indicators range from... Beaufort scale zero. Calm. See like a mirror. Smoke rises vertically. 
to the more inclement weather denoted by... Beaufort scale 7. High wind. Sea heaps up and white foam from breaking waves begin to be blown in streaks along the direction of the wind. Whole trees in motion. Inconvenience felt when walking against the wind. To the ominous. Beaufort scale 12. Hurricane. The air is filled with foam and spray. Visibility very seriously affected. On land, devastation. For his accomplishments, this Irish hydrographer was knighted in 1848. And he is remembered by various geographical and nautical features all over the globe, including the Beaufort Sea, north of Canada, and Beaufort Island, off the coast of Antarctica. Now, if hydrography is the science that measures and describes the physical features of bodies of water, then let us come back to the mainland and talk about the science surrounding a different type of water. And I particularly mean talk about, because our next impressive Irishman may not have been the first to invent carbonated water, but he is credited with naming it soda. The history of carbonated water is a varied one. The process of impregnating water with fixed air was invented by Englishman Joseph Priestley in the 1760s as a possible cure for scurvy. The newfangled drink was then commercialised in 1786 by Swiss entrepreneur Johann Jacob Schwepp, who bottled and sold his fizzy water. When Schwepp's then moved operations to London, it wasn't long until the bubbly drink fizzled across the Irish Sea to our shores. Augustine Thwaites was an apothecarist with a business at 40 Marlborough Street in Dublin, and he set up Thwaites Mineral Water. He started selling his carbonated water under the name Soda, probably because he noticed that adding sodium carbonate to his water helped the absorption of the carbon dioxide. In an 1801 advertisement in the Dublin Journal, Augustine Thwaites was even advertising a new apparatus for making mineral water, and listed the types of water he had for sale, including seltzer, cheltenham, and soda. Because of its suspected health properties, it's no wonder that soda was sold at Thwaites Apothecary, and it wasn't long until the bubbly water was being sold in drugstores in America by soda jerks thus solidifying the beverage's name in popular culture. Cheers to you, Mr. Thwaites. Now, on to a gas of a different nature. The year, 1828. The location, the bedroom of Henry Paget, the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland and First Marquess of Anglesey. Ugh, my tam-tam is just too sore. Too puffed up and I can't help feeling I want to do a... Pop into the bed there, your lordship. It's all the rich food you've eaten. You must be ready to... Blow me down with a feather. The pain. I'm going to do a... Whoopsie. Did you drop something? Yes, sorry, your lordship. I'll bend down now to get it. (laughs) Was that you? No, your lordship. Must have been me, sir. Fetch me a doctor to cure me of this infernal wind. And a doctor was fetched for the Marquis. Dr James Murray, to be precise. Dr Murray was born in Derry in 1788 and was a leader in the practice of electrotherapy, midwifery and pharmaceuticals. 
It was his expertise in the last area that led to his greatest invention, fluid magnesia. Which then went on to become milk of magnesia. His solution was recommended as a palatable laxative and as a remedy for acidity, indigestion, heartburn and gout. His remedy was so effective he was chosen to be the resident doctor to the gassy Lord Lieutenant he had treated. Murray's fluid magnesia was marketed and sold as far away as Australia. However, the good doctor didn't have the foresight to patent his invention. That opportunity was taken by Charles Henry Phillips, an English pharmacist who received a patent two years after Murray's death in 1873 for his very own milk of magnesia. Murray's fluid magnesia was a big seller across the world, but not as big as our next snappy little item. Waterford, 1824. Isaac and Anne Jacob lived on O'Connell Street in the city. Isaac ran a bakery on Bridge Street, which dealt in bread, but also produced biscuits. The biscuits were produced mainly for the shipping economy that sailed out of the Waterford ports. Biscuits stayed fresher for longer and thus were more suitable for sailors on long journeys. By 1850, Isaac and Anne's sons, William and Robert, had taken over the business and wanted to take it in a new direction. Ireland was still in the grips of the Great Hunger, however, the brothers were expanding their business and their range of produce. They pasted a notice on their shop front in 1850 reading, We beg respectfully to inform our numerous customers and the public of Waterford that we intend opening next week the premises number 69, the keys, for the sale of the various articles of the general and fancy baking trade. By breaking into the fancy biscuit world, they hoped to secure some of the market that imports from Edinburgh and Carlisle had held for so long. By 1851, the business had begun trading under the name W&R Jacobs, and the operation had taken a lease out on Peter's Row in Dublin City. But it wasn't long until the factory expanded to encompass Bride Street, Bishop Street and Peter Street as well. And though the fancy biscuit trade flourished, an opportunity involving a much more humble snack was just around the corner and would firmly place Jacobs on the map. In a much more modest Dublin kitchen, Joseph Houghton was working. He was combining flour, vegetable oil, salt and yeast, creaming the contents of the bowl together and baking a new laminated and blistered cracker, the cream cracker. The recipe for cream crackers was eventually procured by Jacobs, who began manufacturing them in 1885. The popularity of the cracker grew and grew, until it became one of the most popular snacks in the world. It remains just as popular today, being sold from the UK to Argentina, Taiwan to Peru, and Southeast Asia to South Africa. Not a bad result for the brothers from the Dacia and the home baker from the fair city. So, produce from our fair isle was being exported and sent around the world thanks to postage and delivery services. However, these services got a little bit easier to handle thanks to an Irish train enthusiast. People have been delivering letters since the time of the pharaohs in Egypt. But mail delivery systems were kind of flawed, even up as far as the 17th century. At that time, the onus of payment was on the recipient rather than the sender, 
So it meant a lot of couriers would not get paid. I got a letter for you, Mum. Well, all right, boy. Hand it over. That'll be twopence, please. Two pennies? Well, I brought it all the way from Newcastle. Oh, did ya? Give it here. <sighs> Should have seen that coming. The first idea of making the sender pay for postage came in 1680, when the London Penny Post showed proof of payment using a wooden stamp to apply ink to a letter. Hence the name Stamp. This method of prepaying continued until 1835, when an Austro-Hungarian civil servant floated the idea of artificially affixed postal tax stamps on pressed paper wafers. I think we should have artificially affixed postal tax stamps on pressed printed wafers. The idea was not adopted. However, two years later, an MP in the UK government suggested that we could use a bit of paper just large enough to bear the stamp and covered at the back with a glutinous wash. Thus, the first stamp, the Penny Black, was created and was issued on the 1st of May 1840. However, at the time, 240 stamps would be printed on large sheets and had to be cut out by hand, which took a long time and proved precarious. In steps Irishman, Henry Archer. Uh, hello there. I was the managing director of the Festiniog Railway Company in Wales. However, I was always a bit of an inventor. I saw the postal system had a problem and I went about fixing it. I invented the first postage stamp perforating machine, which I patented in 1848. This nifty machine created horizontal and vertical lines of punched out dots on the sheets of stamps allowing the necessary amount to be pulled apart and sold. Genius! I know! <laughs> in 1851, I made a dummy stamp of the Prince Consort, Prince Albert. And though the stamps were never sold, they did showcase the brilliance of my perforating machine. Archer's patent for his machine was purchased by the United Kingdom government for £4,000, about £600,000 in today's money. And the first perforated stamps were sold in 1854. The iconic teeth surrounding the edge of a perforated stamp could be seen on envelopes all over the world until the introduction of the self-adhesive stamp which first began in Sierra Leone in 1964. And from coastal Sierra Leone we travel inland and look upwards to the scorching blue skies above mainland Africa. The year is 1928 and streaking above the lush greenery of the Serengeti and the sands of the Sahara was a little aeroplane and within it an Irish woman, Lady Mary Heath. Born as Sophie Pierce Evans in Nockaderry, County Limerick in 1896, this amazing aviatrix had an upsetting start to life. By the age of one, her father had been sent away for the killing of her mother and she was sent to be raised by two aunts. She was well-educated and graduated from the Royal College of Science in Ireland with a degree in Agricultural Sciences. During her college years, she contributed to university publications and she moved to Kenya after she graduated. It was here where she published her book of poetry called East African Nights. Athletics, however, was her passion. 
Moving to England during the First World War, she was a founder member of the Women's Amateur Athletic Association. And she also excelled at javelin, high jump and women's pentathlon at the 1923, 1924 and 1926 Women's Olympiads. Her shot put and discus records would not be beaten until the 1960s. She then went on to become a judge at the 1928 Summer Olympics in Amsterdam, the first Summer Olympics at which women were allowed to compete in athletics. However, Lady Mary had loftier sights and set about training to hold a professional pilot's license and became the first woman to hold such a license in Britain in 1929. She set many records as an aviatrix and amazingly was the first woman to parachute from an aeroplane landing in the middle of a football match. And Smith has got the ball. He passes to Jones. Back to Smith. Back to Jones. What a gripping match. Back to Smith. Oh, and it's been intercepted by Heath. Lady Mary Heath is now tearing down the pitch and she is gathering her opponents in her parachute. No one can stop her. She parachutes. She scores. However, Arguably her greatest achievement was her flight over the African continent, from Cape Town in South Africa to Croydon in England in 1928. Thinking the trip would take her three weeks, she set off in her open cockpit aircraft with a Bible, a shotgun, a couple of tennis rackets, six tea dresses and a fur coat. The trip eventually took three months, but when she landed in May of that year, after a 10,000 mile journey, she had become the first person in the world to traverse the continent from south to north. A truly amazing feat. In the 1930s, she returned to Ireland and set up a pilot training business in Kildonan in Dublin. And her students would go on to be instrumental in the setting up of the national airline Aer Lingus in 1936. Commercial air travel was still in its infancy in Ireland at the time. On the east coast, a disused World War I aerodrome was being developed into what would become Dublin Airport. And on the west coast, a new airport was being built at Rhinana County Clare. There had already been a seaplane terminal at Foynes on the south side of the river estuary, but this new terminal would go on to be called Shannon Airport. This was, and still is, a hugely important destination for transatlantic flights. But one thing you might not know that originated at Shannon Airport was duty-free. While travelling home to Ireland from America aboard a ship, a man called Brendan O'Regan from Six Mile Bridge noticed goods being sold on board the ship minus tax. If it could happen at sea, he thought, surely it could happen once you touch down after a flight. He set about convincing the Revenue Commissioners and the Department of Industry and Commerce of the benefits of his idea. And in 1947, the Customs Free Airport Act established Shannon Airport as the first duty-free airport in the world. Amsterdam followed suit in 1957 and American airports followed in 62. Then, as we know, duty-free took over the world. And before we take a break, I just want to end on a sweet note. O'Regan was one of the first people to welcome weary American passengers when they landed at Shannon. Seeing how exhausted they were, Brendan asked Joe Sheridan, the head chef at Fines Air Base, to concoct something warm to welcome the tired passengers to Ireland. 
Sheridan thought about it and then took some Irish whiskey, silky cream, sweet sugar and combined it with a warm brew. And thus, the Irish coffee was born. Oh my God, Stanley. It's so delicious. So comforting. So... So give me another one. Join us after the break for more amazing stories. Welcome back to Extraordinary Era. Let's jump straight back in. The Irish Times, Friday, March 2nd, 1928. A happy luncheon party. The Dublin Stock Exchange has seldom or never had a more delightful function, shall we say, thrust on its members than that which was celebrated yesterday. Two senior members of two of the oldest firms, having attained their 50 years membership off the exchange, asked their brother members to join them in celebrating this happy event. They did this by providing a most sumptuous lunch, served on the floor of the house itself. Practically all members of the exchange were present, including Miss Una Kyo, the only woman stockbroker on the exchange. Come here, did you hear that? A woman stockbroker? Ah, fair play to her. Good on you, girl. Yes, indeed. Una Kyo certainly shook up the newly formed Irish Free State of the 1920s. When she was just 22 years old, she made an application to become a full member of the Irish Stock Exchange. A woman? Yes, sir. But that's absurd. Surely we cannot allow this to happen. Is she educated? Very well educated. What about money? She has the requisite funds. But what about experience? Sir, she has it all. She did have it all, having gained all the experience she needed working at her father's stockbroking firm. Another thing that went in her favour was that Article 3 of the Constitution of the Irish Free State guaranteed equal opportunities for all, regardless of gender. And though, on paper, she was literally a perfect candidate to be granted membership, it still took the members three weeks of debate to grant her admission. Although there had been a few women who worked in or ran their own stockbroking firms since the late 1800s, when she did join the floor of the Irish Stock Exchange, Una Kyo was the first female stockbroker in the world to be a member of a national stock exchange. It would be nearly half a century before America or the United Kingdom would admit women onto their trading floors. If I said it once, I'll say it again. Fair play to you, young one. You show those men who's boss. <laughs> Around the same time as Una Kyo was starting her journey in the stock market, a Donegal child was making her journey to the other side of the world. Kay McNulty was born on February 12, 1921, outside of Creesla village in County Donegal. And even though the family had emigrated, she was brought up to never forget her homeland. I was born in the same land where my father's family had lived since 1804. In October 1924, we sailed for the United States. My father met us in New York and took us to our new furnished house in Winmore, where we lived for two years. We spoke only Gaelic in our house in Ireland and the United States. My brothers, however, had started school and learned English. They brought their books home, and I learned to read in English, although I probably didn't pronounce the words right. Moving to the States provided Kay a better education than she could have dreamed of in Ireland in the 20s and 30s. 
After high school, she attended Chestnut Hill College for Women and in 1942 graduated with a degree in mathematics. Not enamoured with the idea of becoming a school teacher, fortune befell Kay when two weeks after graduating, she saw the US Army were hiring women with mathematical degrees. Uncle Sam wants you to calculate ballistics trajectories. Kay was hired as a human computer, spending 40 hours calculating the firing tables for a single firearm, with each gun having a possible 1,800 trajectories. In the next few years, a top-secret project called ENIAC was developed to do the same job. Did you say ENIAC? The Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer. The first automatic, general-purpose, electronic, decimal, digital computer ever built. In 1945, Kay was among a group of six women who were chosen to be this computer's first programmers. The work was so classified that for the first few months, the six computer programmers weren't even allowed into the room that stored the 30-ton computer. They worked on blueprints in the room next door. After devising calculations on paper, only then were the programmers allowed to physically program the machine. On the launch day for ENIAC, the six computer programmers were told to act as hostesses, to stand by the machine and to look good. This lack of acknowledgement is the main reason that it took until 1997 for Kay and her colleagues to be inducted into the Women in Technology Hall of Fame. And in Ireland, an academic award and university science building have been named in honour of McNulty, who along with her five female colleagues was the first electronic computer programmer in the world. The next intriguing story is about another Irish person who left our shores for America and who then left American shores for lands further afield. We know little about our subject for the first half century of his life because we have to rely on his testimonies as he recalled his life. He went by many names, William Colvin, Larry O'Rourke, Collins, Kelly, but he more than likely was Lawrence Carroll from Booterstown Avenue in Black Rock, born around 1850. Lawrence's epic journey began in the 1870s. The young Lawrence boarded a ship in Ireland and made his way across the Atlantic as a cabin boy. Once he made it ashore, he went from odd job to odd job, never really having a base to call his own, never really having any security. He also had some run-ins with the law for his propensity to sneak onto the rolling stock of freight trains so he could ride the rails for free. He lived a life on the rails until the 1880s when he found himself on the west coast in San Francisco. From San Francisco, he got a job on a mail ship travelling to Japan. But after three successful return journeys, he was put off the ship for being drunk and disorderly. Then, from Japan, he made his way to Rangoon in Burma, now Myanmar, and became a tallyman, counting deliveries in the docks as they were being loaded onto and off of the ships. Now, if you think this story is about the first Irishman who worked in a harbour in Rangoon, you'd be wrong. Lawrence's life here took a dramatic turn. While in Rangoon, Lawrence came in contact with the local Buddhists. He discovered many things about the religion and before long, he had become a Buddhist himself. And by 1900, after nearly half a century vagrancy, Lawrence had become a Buddhist monk and changed his name to Damaloka. 
In fact, he was the first Westerner ever to become a Buddhist monk. Before being ordained, Damaloga, like many sailors, had been a free thinker or atheist. He became a public speaker who denounced the Christian missionaries and the imperialism of British culture which was prevalent in Burma at the time. He said Christianity was irrational and unscientific. And, rather than presenting himself as an expert on Buddhism, he urged his audience to listen to local monks who knew more than him. Damaloka and his speeches began to gain him notoriety across Asia. And in 1911, he was charged with and found guilty of sedition. Still, he had the support of the Burmese people, with Rangoon shutting down for the trial, a local cinema donating profits to his cause, newspapers getting behind him, and his lawyer being a leading Burmese nationalist. Just as with the start of his life, very little is known about the end of Damaloka's life too. There were sightings of him in Bangkok up until 1914, but with the outbreak of the First World War, all press attention shifted back to Europe. It is presumed Damaloka, the Irish Buddhist monk, retreated to a monastery to live out the end of his days. And now, from a free thinker to a forward thinker. February 12th. 1947, Rue de Montagne, Paris. The fashion elites from all around the world gathered at the headquarters of the new fashion house, Dior, for its first spring-summer runway. In all, Christian Dior presented 90 silhouettes in two fashion lines called Carole and Henri. The audience was abuzz with excitement. Regarde! The full skirt. Regarde the rounded shoulder. Ooh la la. And then, from within the cigarette perfumed crowd, something iconic was uttered. God help those who bought before they saw Dior. This changes everything. It's quite a revolution, dear Christian. Your dresses have such a, uh, a new look. The new look. Carole and Henri were no more. The collection would forever be known as the New Look. The world of fashion was changed and Christian Dior was put on the map and all because this woman uttered these words. This woman was Carmel Snow. Born Carmel White in Dawkey in 1887, she emigrated to America with her mother after the death of her father. Carmel was sent to a convent boarding school in Brussels and when she returned to America, her mother had set up a sprawling dressmaking business, employing over 250 seamstresses. This is where Carmel's keen eye for fashion was honed. Carmel would often accompany her mother to Paris, the fashion capital of the world. She even joined the Red Cross in Paris during World War I, and during this time she strengthened her fashion industry connections in the city. When she returned to America after the war, she was ready to hit out on her own. She began writing about Paris fashion for the New York Times. It wasn't long until she was offered a job as assistant fashion editor at Vogue. Now, in her early 40s, she felt stifled by the lack of creativity she was allowed to show at Vogue. So she left the venerable publication to become fashion editor of the rather more stuffy publication, Harper's Bazaar. However, Harper's Bazaar would not be considered stuffy for long. 
by 1934, she had risen to editor-in-chief, and it was her aim to change the magazine. During her tenure, she showcased numerous talented people, turning most into household names, including Andy Warhol, Truman Capote, Lauren Bacall and Cecil Beaton. She never forgot where she came from, and the pages of her magazine also showcased the work of Irish artists, including Sean O'Casey and Frank O'Connor. She even organised trade trips to Ireland to promote Irish fashion. Irish fashion designers reaped the fruits of her efforts, and in August 1953, the model Anne Gunning appeared on the cover of Time magazine in a Sybil Connolly full-length red Kinsale cape and a white crochet evening gown under the heading Irish Invade Fashion World. Carmel Snow was forced to retire at the age of 70. She moved to County Mayo but soon returned to New York City because she felt lonely in the countryside. She died at the age of 74 and afterwards the photographer Richard Avedon said She faded before stardom became a thing. There weren't stars in her day. And speaking of stars, here's a riddle for you. What do space travel and animated movies have in common? Um, they both have aliens? Uh, no. Is it that rockets kind of look like pencils and pencils draw animated movies? <laughs> I'll stop you there. No. Is it cause you eat popcorn while watching them both? No! Well, well what, what then? then? I presumed you would have gotten this considering the theme of the documentary. It's Ireland. Oh. Or should I say Dublin? To be more specific, Cabra. That is to say... Broombridge. Oh, just get on with the story, will you? If you insist. On the 16th of October, 1843, Sir William Rowan Hamilton was walking along the Royal Canal with his wife, Helen Maria Bailey, when he had a eureka moment. He took a knife out of his pocket and carved a mathematical equation into the stone at Broombridge. I squared is equal to J squared is equal to K squared is equal to IJK is equal to minus one. The Quaternion. The Huyawa. This stroke of genius had been the culmination of years of research. William Rowan Hamilton was born on Dominic Street in Dublin in 1805. He was educated by his uncle in Trim, County Meath, and then attended Trinity College. He was a hugely intelligent child, especially in the field of mathematics and languages. And before he even graduated, he was appointed Royal Astronomer of Ireland and he moved into Dunsink Observatory on the outskirts of the city. Hamilton made some great discoveries in the field of optics and he also regarded himself as something of a poet. However, his friend, William Wordsworth, would often tell him to stick to mathematics. Are you ready, Wordsworth? <clears throat> Sometimes I wish that I might nothing do in this wide world, but only think of thee. All other business I would eschew, and this my only business always be. Well, what did you think? Um, well, it's no I wandered lonely as a cloud. Hamilton had been focusing for many years on trying to solve an age-old equation, the result of which was to plot a point in three-dimensional space. It was easy to convey on paper a point in two-dimensional space, but this problem had even defeated Isaac Newton many years before. 
This was what Hamilton discovered under the bridge on the Royal Canal all those years ago. And little did he know that this discovery would go on to be the basis of computer-aided imagery, which has revolutionised the movie industry. And even more impressive, his quaternion is used to plot routes and journeys which navigate spacecrafts to the farthest reaches of the solar system. Now that is stellar. And where better to end our journey than among the stars? Those stars of sciences, religion and invention. Those stars who went on to make new stars in the world of fashion and engineering. The Irish stars who burned brightly, but quietly, and whose stories we hope will live forever on the winds of time, up in the era. Extraordinary Era was written and narrated by Donica O'Dea, produced and edited by Amy O'Dwyer and voiced by Ashling Breen, Anthony Kinnahan, Margaret McAuliffe, Steve Murray, Kieran O'Grady, David O'Mara and Deborah Wiseman. Extraordinary Era is funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.